UEG Talks, Gastroenterology to Go. Welcome to our GI podcast. Listen for fresh insights and perspectives in science, education, and professional development. Hello, everyone. Welcome to this episode of the UEG Talks. My name is Pradeep Mundre, and I'm your host for today. Now, gastroenterology is a specialty that crisscrosses medicine and surgery. Although we trained in a medical subspeciality, our closest colleagues are surgeons, and mostly we tend to work alongside surgical colleagues on a day-to-day basis. And from my memory as a trainee, the encounters that I remember were very different with our surgical colleagues. And currently, as a senior doctor, these encounters are totally on the opposite side, basically. They always seem to be some barrier between us, as though we're two wild cats guarding each other's territory of admissions. And often, I remember differences in terms of admitting patients, whether it should be a surgical admission or a medical admission. And this is how I remember as a trainee. But that tone has changed significantly as a consultant. Nowadays, the encounters are very much collaborative, friendly, and with a purpose to help out each other and making work life easier for both of us. Now, today's discussion is about exactly the same thing, collaborative working between gastroenterologists and surgeons. How we interact with each other can benefit from each other and help out each other in our working lives. Now, this episode is a bit special because instead of the one guest, we have two guests, uh, two amazing guests today. Uh, firstly, Professor Dieter Hanlose, a Professor of Surgery and Head of the Department of Colorectal Surgery at Lausanne University Hospital in Switzerland. Dieter is also the President of the European Society for Surgery of the Alimentary Tract. And we also have Henrietta Heinrich, who we all know, who is the chair of the UEG Education Committee and head of endoscopy at the University of Basel. Welcome, Henrietta and Dieter. Thanks for joining us today. Thank you for having us. Pleasure to be here. Excellent. So uh, first, uh, I'll come to you, Henrietta. Um, I just wondered, uh, how often do you sit with your surgical colleagues in during the week formally to discuss patient care? So there are many opportunities during the week. So we usually have one common meeting in the afternoon where we discuss new admissions, images from the emergency room, um, also patients where we want to find a common treatment plan because we have a shared ward. This happens every day. Sometimes it's very short, sometimes it can take very long, but, and sometimes it's a bit of a battle, but it's usually very constructive. And then, of course, we have the MDTs where we discuss cancer patients and what the best treatment options are. So on a formal basis, I would say we, we see our surgeons every day and informally countless times per day. As I think I have a surgeon in my endoscopy suite at least once a day to just discuss what to do and see what's going on, actually, rather than just looking at a CT scan. Right. I like the idea of the the joint ward that you share. Is that something for all admissions? So is that something where, uh, you know, let's say 
there's some sort of IVD patients where the, such patients would benefit from both surgical and medical input. Do you, do you specify such patients to be under that kind of ward or is it sort of all comers going to that ward? I, I do like that idea. It's, it's amazing, actually. So we are an abdominal center. So the principle is basically that the triage is done by the emergency room, but the abdominal diseases generally meet on the GI ward. Of course, there are clear surgical cases such as cholecystitis, what have you. But especially as you mentioned in IBD patients, it's incredibly helpful because you go on the round and usually the surgeon goes on rounds at the same time and you can just have a very short way of discussing what's going on. And you also, of course, have once a week a, a joint round, but the, you know, the paths to each other are very, very short. Also with regards to liver patients who undergo surgery, this is definitely beneficial to have two teams on the same ward. So Henrietta, can you highlight, for instances, where you interact with your surgical colleagues during emergencies, maybe, for example, not on a on a day-to-day basis, and how often is that, and are there any, any examples of that? I mean, if there's an emergency and you're on call, the probability is probably 99% that you're going to talk to your surgical colleague. And those exchanges can be very tense, especially if you don't want to do what the surgical colleague proposes and think is right. But usually with good arguments, um, you can find common ground. And it's, in my experience, it's incredibly valuable to meet at the bedside of the table, a uh, patient and do an assessment together. Because you, you come from two perspectives. Usually you are asked to perform an endoscopy of some sort for the surgeon, whether it's a leak. And, and then you usually ask on the phone, is the patient stable? And the surgeon goes, yeah, 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 yeah. Because he's just very keen that you just get it done. Uh, because it's a complication and he really wants, wants it to be fixed. So I usually suggest that we meet at the bedside and then we Mm, he's maybe not so doing well, maybe better transfer him to the ICU. And then we have a look and maybe, or first do imaging. So it's more of a collaborative effort, but more under, under pressure. And in the end, you usually find a common strategy to manage the problem. And it's incredibly helpful if you show up at each other's shoulder. That's my experience. So if I have a complicated endoscopy where I'm not sure what I'm looking at, if I have a perforation or not, what is going on, then it's incredibly helpful if your surgical colleague shows up and says, well, I see this, mm, how should we manage this? And you usually find a good solution. Yeah. And uh, Dieter, uh, uh, how about you? So do, do you have similar setup where you work um, in terms of how you interact with your gastroenterologists or is there any other any other ways of meeting your gastroenterologists formally or informally or in uh, emergencies? I think what Henrietta said is absolutely true is that we meet on a regular basis during MDTs, and it's not just cancer, it's also IBD or pelvic floor problems where we present each other cases and then discuss them together. And so this is the formal meetings we have. And the informal meetings, obviously, there's the coffee breaks, and when you cross your or eat together, have lunch, that is also very helpful because sometimes an informal meeting can become formal because you start to discuss about patients. And finally, I think everything depends a little bit on the structure of the hospital. In our hospital, gastroenterologists do not have own beds. So either their patients are hospitalized on the medical ward or the surgical ward. And 
For example, we have set up rules like uh, GI bleeding goes to surgery, pancreatitis goes to surgery, IBD patients go to surgery, and all the others like investigations for liver diseases and things like that go to uh, the medical floor. And I think that's very important. And and uh, to set up the rules, and then everybody sticks to the rules. And finally, what, what Henriette said, I think is essential, that if you discuss in an emergency situation, you know, what to do together, the best way is to go and see the patient. Because at the end, we are not treating a bleeding, we are treating a patient with a bleeding. We're not treating a hole, we're treating a, a patient with a hole or with a complication or with a problem, uh, let's say cholangitis, where you know an ERCP needs to be done now or even should have been done already. Uh, but obviously, and we are all not responsible of our own planning or the other plannings. But I think it's important to really sit together. I think the idea of what Henriette said, have a common uh, unity or a common unit where uh, you do rounds together. I know it's in other hospitals in Switzerland is the case. This is nice to have. This is good, but it's not absolutely necessary. But you need to have, I think, in your institution, some sort of guidelines where things are done and how emergent are certain procedures. Because as Henriette mentioned, for me, it might be more urgent than for Henriette or vice versa. I always feel that surgeons have a different meaning when they say now. Absolutely, that is true. You know, now is now. <laughs> and uh, does it matter for you guys if you've known the surgeon on call or if you've known the gastroenterologist on call? Does the interaction differ between them? Just that familiarity, having seen the faces and things, to, does that change whether you approach them or not? Absolutely. I think that's our life in a hospital. If you know the person, then if I ask Henriette, or I asked because we worked together a couple of years ago to do that, and she knew that that I really was necessary to do, and there was not much questioning. But if I call uh, gastroenterology X, who is on call, and he has no idea, and he has says, no, no, we're not going to do this at night, and no way we're going to do that. So that completely depends. That's why I said it's also important to have certain rules. For example, for a lower GI bleeding, we set up the rules that this and this needs to be done within 12 hours, because that was agreed on that is a, a decent time where uh, it needs to be done. And if the patient is unstable, then obviously we do something else. But again, I think knowing and talking to your gastroenterologist or the surgeon is extremely important because we are all at the end humans. And we all know have our own attitudes and expectations. So if you know your gastroenterologists well, then life is much easier. I think also it's about trust. You always have that surgeon. I don't know if it's the same for your gastroenterologist, Dieter, that you can talk difficult cases through with. Usually it's someone that you've managed a complication with or for, and you've taking care of a patient for a really long time. And you just know that this person just has your ear and will come no matter what is going on. And so you have, like your, I have my surgeons that I, that I trust, that I know that I can call and they will just show up. They will just be there. Absolutely agree. So, um, Dieter, I was just wondering um, if you can give me some example of a recent interaction with a gastroenterologist about maybe a particular case. And could you reflect 
on how it went and so what were the positive things, what were the uh, negative aspects of that interaction? Give us an example if you can. Absolutely, I can give one just, uh, it happened yesterday actually, or the day before yesterday. There was a patient of uh, ours that uh, uh, we operated on the rectal cancer, had a low anastomosis, and they found a polyp on the anastomosis. And uh, the junior gastroenterologist called me and showed me the pictures. And it's very important for us surgeons to go to the endoscopy suite and look at the picture. And I told him, okay, this looks a polyp, but it could also be recurrence of cancer at the anastomotic site. So please do large biopsies. Uh, that was done, and it came out to be a polyp. And then uh, he told me, well, he cannot resect that. He cannot take it out. I said, come on. And I talked, obviously, to uh, the specialist uh, interventional gastroenterologist, and he said, no, no, I can try to do mucosal dissection. And I told him, go ahead. I just told him, it's the anastomosis. So at some point, there is no more dissection possible because you will have staple lines, but I'll be there. I can fix it. If you make a hole, I can fix it. I'll be there. So he did the case. He told me I'm going to do it on, uh, uh, what, what was it? Uh, no, it actually last week. He did, I, I, I'm going to do it on Thursday. I said, perfect, fine. I'm there and can have a look. And then we, at the end, we agreed, no, it doesn't seem to uh, create a perforation. So it's fine and everything went fine. But I was there to back up his technique, which was a little bit, you know, it's not the typical submucosal dissection. It was a submucosal dissection on the anastomosis, so on staples. Uh, obviously, there can be a hole quickly, fast, and we just together managed it. And I think this is the kind of interaction that is extremely helpful because at the end for the patient having to have it resected under surgery or just with a little bit of propofol is a huge difference. The patient went home the same day and, by the way, was doing fine. I guess that extra bit of reassurance of your presence made a massive difference to the decision-making process there. Exactly. And, this, and the gastroenterologist could go a little bit more aggressively because I told him, just go. If it's a hole, don't worry. I can take care of that. And you need that. I mean, Pardeep, you, you know that as well. You need a surgeon who doesn't judge you for the hole that you've made. And I always feel that with surgeons, they, they know how much it hurts the patient, but they also know how much it hurts for you. And they have a much better way of, of dealing with it than gastroenterologists. We have that internal medicine way of flagellating ourselves very long and very intensely. And surgeons, they go like, how can I fix it? This happens. This actually quite happens quite a bit. So let's fix it. And I think it's a brilliant attitude from which I've learned a lot. And I completely appreciated when I get into the panic mode because I see gallbladder and my surgical colleague comes and says, well, could you not use one of your big clips or something? Because I don't really want to go in and the, the, the hole is not that large. And you think, okay, maybe I can do it. And then, then you just do it. And it works quite well. Yeah, it's amazing how human bodies... <laughs> yes, human bodies can take a lot. Yeah, but again, you know, there's isn't... You can do that on a planned manner. What we also did recently is a difficult polyp resection in a colonic flexure. And the gastroenterologist told me that he cannot, because it's a flexure, it's turning around, he cannot get it out. I said, no problem. I do laparoscopy. I'll straight it out for you. You take it out. And if it's a hole, I'll fix it. 
that we've even published on that. So that is a great approach for the patient. Uh, there was actually a little hole. We sutured it and everything went fine and no issue. So these planned combined procedures, I, I think they're reassuring for both. For us, we do a minor surgery, another major surgery, and you you make a hole and we just take care of it. Yeah. For us, holes are much worse. And we can learn a lot from the surgeons on how to manage them. Also with more calm. So how about you, Hendrik? Uh, when was your sort of last interaction and your reflections on that, if you can, if you can remember? <laughs> so my, my last interaction with a surgeon was yesterday. It started via WhatsApp. You usually get a WhatsApp and it's about a patient and you kind of know when you get the line, could you have a look at the image that this is not going to be like a very short look, but this is then usually a patient where you have to discuss it and you go online and look look at the pictures. And then there's another WhatsApp from your surgeon and have you looked at the images? And you're like, still on it. And then, then the, the call comes and then it's like this um, avalanche of getting more and more intense. And in the end, of course, it's about the patient needs to be seen quickly by our unit. And this is what ha should have just been written by me in the WhatsApp chat, but I wanted to come prepared with a plan, but that was not the goal. <laughs> so I was not fast enough, um, but in the end, the patient just came in. We fixed the problem on the same day. But this is something that I particularly enjoy, the different um, perception of time, space, and the word now and that you have with surgeons. I, I very much enjoy that. And sometimes it's also very quite enjoyable that that you don't need to, if it's clear, you don't need to debate so much. You just do it. And I think what's important, uh, what we have not discussed yet, is because if you know the surgeon or the gastroenterologist well, then interaction is easy. But if you do not know them, you have to have in your hospital some sort of algorithms that you have agreed upon beforehand. For example, that certain endoscopies are not done during night. If the patient is stable, you have to define what is a stable patient. Because at the end, most of the time, to be honest, interaction between gastroenterologists and surgeons are done on a resident level or a junior consultant level. They don't know each other. And they are, there's also a lot of mistrust and a lot of uh, surgeons maybe demand something eagerly and the gastroenterologist says, no, this is not this. I was told by my boss not to do that. And then the fighting starts. So that is probably more frequent than the kindly collaboration we've just discussed between Henriette and me. But but I think that what is very helpful in my experience, what I learned is to define certain algorithms. For example, that we have a nice algorithm for uh, lower GI bleeding. So it's clearly defined when we do endoscopy, when we do angiocetes, when we do ang angiographies, and in what time frame an exam should be done. And this is very helpful because say, okay, this should be done within 12 hours, and then it's done within 12 hours, and you have to stick to that, we have to stick to that. And that's very helpful to calm the situation, especially when there are not two people who know each other. And that is most frequently the situation in any hospital, I guess, in Europe. And I also think that, you know, being trained together is something that is beneficial. But again, that's an exception also, most of the time. Yeah, but you, know, you, you sometimes have shared emergency rooms, right? 
with surgeons and internal medicine specialists. And not anymore. Emergency has become an own speciality now. Yeah, but usually surgeons and and internal in my time, it was a long long time ago. Oh yeah, you're very old. <laughs> and you kind of learn how the other specialty clicks. And it's, I think it's important to acknowledge each other's strengths and weaknesses that you know that if an orthopedic surgeon comes to you and says, could you have a look at this ECG? It looks weird that there's probably a whole different story behind that kind of innocent ECG and vice versa. You know, we gastroenterologists sometimes have no clue what surgeons do or how much risk they take. I'm always amazed. So. I think having a bit of training together is actually quite, quite useful. So, I guess, moving on, uh, we generally, as senior clinicians, most decisions that we take at, at, at our level are done in isolation, and we are very confident with the process. However, in some situations, which either they're complex or they're unusual, it really helps if we uh, get advice across the specialties, which we all do. And I guess it's not only reassures us to reaffirm our decision-making process, but also sometimes the alternative approach, which your colleague may have suggested, may be the right thing from the patient's perspective. Now, how important is it for you guys and how are you going to give us some, you may have already mentioned sort of uh, some examples where just going outside your comfort zone and talking to the other person changed the management plan or kind of greatly benefited the patient or, or yourself, for example. Um, can you say a couple of lines about that? Or I think there we, we covered, you know, the most common interactions, emergencies, frequent diseases, but we all have those patients. They have kind of sort, I would say, chronic pain in the abdomen and, and you have done all the investigations and then the gastroenterologist comes and says, listen, I've done every test that is possible. Can you just not have a look inside? And I say, okay, yeah, but this is a very aggressive test. But uh, sometimes, yes, you find something or do a biopsy of something as a surgeon or vice versa. Now we've done surgery and the patient still has pain. And then it's like, well, I don't, I, we did surgery and there's still pain or he's still constipated. I would put that in the functional diseases. And there is sometimes it's just good to discuss with your friend, gastroenterologist, and have another opinion and try to find for the patient a solution. So I think this functional, post-operative, functional pain disturbances, these are the most challenging ones but also the ones where we each other can learn a lot of because we have, as Henriette mentioned at the beginning, and you said also, different viewpoints. We see patients with the same disease with other eyes, with other, uh, in, uh, other angles, and that can be very helpful. And I think it benefits both sides. So I always think that I think, you know, diagnostics like manometry, pH metry, all those functional GI tests, if you interpret them right, you can find the patients that will not do well with surgery, the belchers, the ruminases, all that stuff. And I think having a surgeon listen to that is, is incredibly valuable and finding a solution together. Because sometimes 
you also need to perform maybe a fundoplication in a patient with severe reflux disease and scleroderma. And you're kind of like moving outside any sort of guideline and you need to make that decision together. And having a surgeon who understands the implications of, for example, functional GI testing and what it means is, is very, 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 very important. And especially I, what I particularly like is if I get a patient before surgery and the question beneath all the lines of the referral is, I actually do not want to operate on this patient. I have a bad feeling. And this is usually an incredibly good hunch because there's usually some functional GI disorder that we as gastroenterologists can fix and where the patient then does not need surgery. So I, I particularly like those referrals. Interesting. So uh, kind of with the next thing, sort of as doctors, when we're training, we are all aware of the phrase, uh, I think it's Latin, primum non nocere, uh, means translates to first do no harm. Question is, can harm be averted? Probably not. But the intention to be useful rather than cause no harm should guide medicine for us, I think. And as highly skilled professionals performing probably some of the complex interventions, complications are part of our daily lives. And although we can counsel patients regularly, when they do happen, we feel terrible about it. And I guess that's probably a reflection of our caring nature and all that. And I remember first time when I was a consultant, when I started as a consultant doing endoscopic resections, I had a perforation doing a colonic polypectomy. And I felt terrible afterwards. And then I called my surgeon and the patient was waiting to be taken to the theater. And I went and spoke to the patient and I said, I feel really sorry. And uh, you had to go through the surgery. And I can see that the patient kind of saw in my face how uh, upset I was. And instead of me reassuring the patient, the patient said, oh, doc, don't worry, I'll be fine. These things happen. And this was early on in my career. It's just so can you give us examples of kind of where you had a complication and how you reached out to each other and what were your feelings were, what are your thoughts and the response that you got, what kind of response you got from the other person? Did that reassure you? Did, you know, how important is it to reach out when this happens? Extremely important because we all see complications from other viewpoints. I guess end of the life, we will have more complications than you have complications and you will help us more than we actually need to help you. It's just a matter of surgery or gastroenterologist you're doing. But complications, uh, the older you get, the more you look for a solution that is quickly done and in the need of the patient. And everybody of us obviously remembers his first complication in this and this because that gets hurt. And, And not saying that we don't care about complications anymore the older we get but we have experience of solutions in our heads so we know exactly okay this happened already i did this and this this is how we can approach and that's where the more experienced guys can or the younger guys can learn from the more experienced guys and this this is a very important and i just remember a couple of months ago a junior consultant had his first perforation and he kind of really excited and have you have to come the patient is in peritonitis he's bloated he's not good and everything like that and we just came and i examined the abdomen and told him 
no, he is not bloated. You just did a colonoscopy, so there's lots of air in there, but uh, he's not peritonitis. We can, there's no rush. So the assurance a more senior guy can give to a more junior guy, vice versa, is very, very important and very reassuring at the end. I agree. I just thought about my first perforation. It was my first balloon dilatation in an esophageal stricture. I will never forget it. It's like it always happens on, I say, low endoscopy days where you think, oh, I'm just going to do this one thing and then I'm on holiday. And the patient coughed while the balloon was inflated and it was a complete disaster. And I remember this feeling of, internal freezing and paralysis and fear and I I just saw the hole and I didn't want to believe it and my consultant was like he he's from the western part of Switzerland he was like this is a perforation this is bad and I was like no this cannot happen this is my first balloon dilatation that I've ever done and I'm a bad gastroenterologist and the flagellation set in then the surgeon came female surgeon very practical she was like oh this looks really shit. Um, yeah, this is really a huge hole. Yeah, we can yeah put in a stent, put him in the CT, and then we can see we, whether we can fix it. And then she gave me this very stern look and said, and if I need to go to surgery, I will call you and you will have a look what I do. And I did. We had to go into surgery. I, I watched her fix the perforation. And afterwards, she bought me coffee and said, Henrietta, I know this is hard. This is your first perforation. You harmed someone, but this is going to happen frequently. Get used to it. And it's normal. And it's not because you're a bad gastroenterologist. And that helped me a lot to face up to the things that you do, to know which people to call, and to know that it's normal. I will never forget forget her just buying me a coffee while I was like really sad and feeling like complete failure. But I think, but Henrietta, we should not say that complications become normal. No. I think that is that is not true. But what is normal is the interaction that based on complications mostly of the time start. And what I think really great and what I can encourage all the younger people listening today is to come to the OR to have a look what we're doing or me as a surgeon going to the endoscopy suite and have a look what a cholangitis looks like, you know, when you do a, a papillotomy, how does it look like, you know, and things like that. And that makes the viewpoint, which we do not have in our daily practice, in our own field, that is extremely important. And I would say that each complication, even at a little later stage in your career hurts, or is not normal, obviously, we should try to prevent them. But I, I know what you wanted to say, just wanted to clarify that. I didn't want to say that complications are normal, but that you have to face up to the fact that you will not be able to have a professional life without you feeling that way, sure. hopefully, because complications do happen. I've literally not seen any gastroenterologist or surgeon who didn't have any complication. So I think to have the normal attitude should be the problem solving attitude. And also finding out what led to the perforation, I think that's, or to the complication, I think that's very important because that's what you learn from. And to, and that's the hardest part to accept that this will not be the only time that this will happen. 
So guys, uh, moving on to uh, training, and I occasionally have surgical trainees to come onto my endoscopy list and they train with me. And I, I really love this because I find it very interesting. They always tend to bring sort of new perspective, new knowledge at the same time. And the feedback I get from them is very satisfying. And I guess probably because I would train differently to how they've been trained. So it's very satisfying both ways. But Henrietta, the other, you Education is a very important part of your professional lives. Uh, and yet you as a education committee chair and Dieter as the president of FESAT, you've been involved in education in a big way. And I, I was looking back upon myself, although I go to so many GI international conferences, I've never attended a GI surgical conference, for example. So can you comment on how we can benefit from each other in terms of training and education and are there any clues and hints and how other people get involved in different conferences and things to kind of for the benefit of both of us? I think the important way in training is you have to listen to the other needs. For example, in Switzerland, as surgeons, we are not allowed to do endoscopy. So there is no training need for us to do endoscopies. But it's important to see what an endoscopy is and what can be done. In Switzerland, uh, gastroenterologists have very little exposure to proctological diseases. It's mainly done by surgeons. So gastroenterologists, uh, we did that when we worked together in Zurich with Henriette. We uh, worked together and she uh, or gastroenterologists came to our outpatient proctology unit or even uh, outpatient surgical unit and just watched what we are doing. and. Having common lectures, actually, in Switzerland, we have one of our national meeting is a joint meeting between, between GI surgeons and gastroenterologists. And there we have common lectures. And I think this is also part of education or training to have common lectures where we discuss pros and cons for diseases like, uh, I would say, the rectal polyp, big rectal polyp, you know, how should it be taken out and things like that, where there we have two ways of approaching it. And I think that is extremely helpful to have such a collaboration in training. But the best thing I would suggest to anybody is talk to your gastroenterologist as a surgeon and ask, you know, where is your training not sufficient? And what can I do to help you? And vice versa, for the, the gastroenterologists, ask the surgeons, you know, where do you think I can give you an input? I think that's extremely important. Yeah, I, I like the idea of joint conferences because there's a lot to learn from how the other speciality thinks. And I also like your idea, Dieter, about the, us going to see some surgical procedures, see how things look from the outside and the vice versa from your point of view. Because you've just mentioned it, uh, this year at the UEG 2023, we'll have the first time a common educational session or a hands-on session, even where surgeons and gastroenterologists look at some diseases and explain to each other what is important. You know, when you do an endoscopy and say it has a polyp approximately at 15 centimeters, and you don't care if it's at 15, 18, 11, or 10, because it's not important for you. For us, it's crucial to know how exactly where it is. Is it anteriorly, posteriorly, lateral? So that makes a huge difference. And for a gastroenterologist, a non-experienced one, it's probably not so important to 
to mention that in his report, but as a surgeon, it's much more important or vice versa. There are other things that are more important to you than, than it's for us. And EOG will offer this year at the, at the meeting, this learning possibility to have a common language to understand what are the needs of each other for certain uh, GI diseases. I think it's a brilliant program because my feeling is that fields of surgery and gastroenterology will will merge more and more. We'll have more common ground in the future than even now. And it's so important to really also, if you want to become an interventional endoscopist, it's un, it's crucial to understand surgical landmarks and why the position of the polyp is so important because your resection might not work. So it is truly important to understand the consequences of you not maybe not being able to do something and also to develop a plan B. So I think the program that Dieter mentioned is groundbreaking. I think it's so important. I would love to go there myself. (laughs) (laughs) I'll definitely try to encourage my surgical colleagues to attend that. Moving on to sort of approaching a problem. I think I know it from a gastroenterologist's perspective. We all think and approach a problem very differently. And I guess it's influenced by not only by your character, but also by the way you're trained. Do you think surgeons and gastroenterologists vary differently in their approaches and perspective to a problem? Just, you know, not by virtue of their training, but just inherent practicing. Um, do you have any comments on that? We're two species. <laughs> we are surgeons and you are medical doctors. So it's not the same species. No, it is a little bit harsh what I'm saying, but it's another mindset. It's another approach of how we, we do. I would say the sur- surgeon is very much solution oriented. He is very much a narrowed field in his vision, uh, in a specialized field. And the internal, the gastrologist who is at the end a medical doctor also has a broader view, and you're also gifted with your hands doing great procedures. But at the end, I think the mindset from the start off is completely different. Yeah, I agree. But this is something we, we touched a little bit on. It's, it's about solving problems and about being very organized in solving those problems. And from, I mean, Pardeep, you know, in interventional endoscopy, you need to be quick on your feet. It's like in surgery, you need to adapt to a quickly changing situation although you had a plan for how this intervention should go these are the things that we probably have in common a bit with surgeons sure but you do much more diagnostics than we do yes we do much more therapy oriented and you're also part of your work is is lots of diagnostic also Yes, but when we move to intervention, I think these surgical skills to focus on the problem ahead and to deal with the stuff that arises right in front of you, that is very surgical. But the diagnostic stuff and also about should I do this, that is very much the trait of um, an internal medicine specialist. Um, One of my favorite surgical colleagues says, you know, now I need you to overthink the issue for me. And that is something that that internal medicine specialists they they see the patient from all perspectives, and they they try to integrate this with the treatment plan. Um, and that's I think a unique trait of of internal medicine. So it looks like we disagree. Our disagreements do come up between us as professionals. And I guess 
in the past, I used to feel very unsettled or uncomfortable when I was challenged about my decision-making process. But that thing has really, really changed lately. I, I love to be challenged because that kind of gives me a very broader perspective, thinking from the other person's uh, side of things and what that might be what patients want. How do you guys, uh, just a quick word on how do, how do you deal with the difference, you know, uh, contentious things where certainly the, the, the approach is very different. Uh, how, how do you, do you, do you reach out to a third person to uh, settle it or, you know, what's the best way to deal with this? I think it depends on how the challenge is brought forward. Okay. I think that is very, if it's based in fact and, and brought forward in a rational way, then you can kind of get into that nice, you know, academic discussion where in the end you find the right way. But sometimes these arguments become very heated and very unpleasant. I find them as well. And then I, I kind of like to, um, not postpone the decision, but to have all heads cool off and then meet again, maybe also armed with data and a plan to solve the issue. But it always depends how the criticism or how the challenge is brought forward. I think fights are normal, are a part of life. It's like a marriage. Uh, you also fight. But then uh, what the best solution I could tell the, the younger uh, people listening, have a good fight. Uh, sleep over and the next day go and have a coffee just at breakfast uh, okay come on let's drink a coffee quickly and all the problems not all 95 percent will go away and you will find a solution a common agreed solution upon but sometimes it's good to sleep over it and not to become too much data driven at the end and start to argue everything with data because as you know Literature can be seen from that way and this way, and you can read the same literature and have completely different opinions. Yeah, I agree with you, Dita, on the having a, a coffee the next day when heads have cooled. And I think what is very important is not to have those challenges over the phone or indirectly, but face-to-face. -face. That helps me a great deal because then you can usually solve the situation with, with a smile or just a quick joke to remind people that, this is about the patient, you're actually human, and you want to find a solution for that patient. So I, I quite like the idea of, of the coffee. That's good. But at the end, you know, these fights bring up also problems that maybe you should sit down and fix with an algorithm, an internally driven algorithm. So that's why what we did for several issues uh, I mentioned already the lower GI bleeding. You know, it was not clear in the emergency department when do we do CT, when do we do endoscopy, when do we this. So we sat together, all the radiology, interventional radiology, diagnostic radiology, gastroenterology surgeons. Everybody presented an algorithm. We agreed upon an algorithm, and now we're trying to stick to it. And we have to modify it. I think discussion problems also uh, bring up topics that you can sit together and try to find the best algorithm in your hospital, in the institution, in your practice. And not one, the algorithms we do in Lausanne might not fit Basel, where Henriette works, because uh, there are other infrastructures, other structural problems that maybe are there or not here. So you need to just sit down and try to fix uh, the most common fights so they don't happen all the time.
Yeah, I agree. And I think I like the point about sitting together with all specialities because I don't think it would be beneficial if the radiologist kind of gave out an SOP, went to, you know, angular CT and lower GI bleeding. I think the approach you chose to, to bring everyone to the table and actually agree with it, who need angular CTs or who need an endoscopy or who need surgery is the best path forward because then everyone knows that they've agreed to it and that they've discussed it. And, and again, you know, just the term urgent. For you, it's probably within six hours. For us, it's now. So we don't have the same. No, just me. We don't have the same definitions of what is urgently needs to be urgently done. So you just have to sit down and define what is urgently in this and this situation. And then most of the problems are, is gone or are gone. 12 to 24 hours is urgent for an endoscopist. I know. That is next day for us. That's nothing to do with urgency. <laughs> okay, guys. <laughs> we, we had some really, really interesting discussions about this. Uh, do you guys have any uh, final sort of pieces of advice to younger people who are training? Just quick summary advice, basically. Listen to your gastroenterologist. Talk with your gastroenterologist. Find your preferred gastroenterologists and try to have common grounds treating the same diseases in the same patient. Henriette? I agree with Dieter. And also what I think is the most important part, trying to understand each other's work. So for the surgeon to really look what does an ESD or what does a polypectomy mean or what does, a, you know, what does ERCP mean? And for us as gastroenterologists to really go into the operating room and understand what's going on there and why it's being performed that way. And I think understanding each other's work is crucial for the benefit of the patients and for the relationship you have with your surgeons that you trust. Okay. Uh, Dita, Henrietta, thank you so much for your time and effort uh, to come and talk to me today. I certainly have learned a lot for personally, and I hope our listeners will probably have a different perspective next time they interact with their surgeons or gastroenterologists. Thank you so much for joining us. You're welcome. Thank you for having us.